Todd Run Podcast. I'm your host, David Bethay, joined here by my good friend, Scott, the Status Assassin. Scott Zilipa, what's up? Sports is finally back. Yeah, man. We had a night last night. We had uh, this, and this is being recorded on Friday. On We had a Thursday night. We had, what, four major professional leagues playing at the same time? Mm-hmm. If uh, you're new to the podcast, uh, you can find us on all social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter. You can email us at Sports at gmail.com. And... Um, we're coming to you today with a Falcons season preview in the form of five burning questions. And uh, we're excited to do this. Uh, Scott, we're jumping on here talking about the Atlanta Falcons. You and I talk about the Falcons a good bit uh, with varying levels of optimism. And Ben Trice, when you listen to this, I think you will appreciate Scott's takes. This is why I hope you two become friends over there in Cali at some point. <laughs> um, but Scott, I think one of the things we talked about is our levels of optimism for the season are quite, quite different. Am I correct on that? Probably. Like if someone asked me, am I excited about the Falcons? I would probably say, why? (laughs) And look, I don't know. If anybody's familiar with Atlanta sports, this shouldn't be news to you. But hear me out. A team that is consistently average to above average to good usually isn't completely terrible. Also, isn't really great. Just good enough to win the playoffs, sell some tick or get to the playoffs, sell some tickets, go home, do it all again next year. Okay, so we're not talking about the Hawks, Scott, <laughs> or or the Braves for the last two decades, or the Falcons for the last two decades. Anyway, I digress. The NFL is hard. Okay, yeah. So you have to do a lot of things really well to clearly have an advantage. So like just having Matt Ryan and Julio. Doesn't mean you can just no. go make fart noises on defense and think you're gonna win. <laughs> and I was actually telling this to my wife earlier, but the NFL has the parity model down better than any other league. You're all you're always only one good draft and usually a passable quarterback away, or even just one good year from your quarterback mm-hmm. away from being good. I mean, look at the Mitch Trubisky year a couple of years ago for the Bears. You know, people are trying to run him out of town and he makes a Pro Bowl and they go twelve and four the one year he plays really well. Yeah, and and so much of it can just be health-related, too. That's true. That is true. And and that's part of how it's very easy to talk yourself into a team, right? Like, if somebody told me the offensive line will be healthy all season, and I'm like, all right, uh, we're winning 10, 11 games. This Mm -hmm. offense is going to kill it. Mm -hmm. That's not unique to the Falcons. If you Mm -hmm. look at teams, if you have the same offensive line start, like, the whole season, you make the playoffs, period. It doesn't even matter if you're like, the Browns, when they were Pete Browns, you still squeak into the playoffs, right? Yeah. If you're healthy, yeah. you know, you win games. So, so that, that's a good segue into our first question. The first of our five questions is simply, who's going to play this year? Like, who are our starters? And um, on offense, you can pretty much write them all in an ink, and it's pretty clear. I mean, you, you know you're going to have Matt Ryan at quarterback, Julio and Calvin Ridley as your wide receivers. Russell Gage as your number three receiver and Gage put together a good year last year. I think he had close to 50 catches somewhere around there. Um, RIP to the all first round draft pick offense, by the way, with Russell Gage winning that spot and sending Treadwell to the practice squad. Did he he get picked up on the practice squad or we cut him completely? Mm -hmm. Uh, Last I saw he was practice squad. And if you're, if you were one of the people that was, that was excited about Laquan Treadwell, Why? Really, why were you excited about Laquan Treadwell? If you really want to know why we are saying Laquan Treadwell is a bum, I want you to go Google his rookie highlight tape. <laughs> I love that tape. It's so good. If you're, if you're wondering what we're talking about, just do it. You'll thank us later. It's 15 seconds long. And it includes all of the highlights from his rookie year. So anybody that thought Laquan Treadwell was going to come in here and move the meter, I'm sorry. That was a pipe dream. He wasn't going to come in here and do a whole lot of anything. And, I honestly, I trust Russell Gage probably more than I trust him because Gage can separate from uh, defensive backs in the NFL, which we've never seen the Quan Treadwell do. Ridley as a number two, he's definitely he's one of the best route runners in the NFL. He's led the NFL in yards of separation per route run as a rookie. So I mean, he's definitely poised to be number two. He's probably a future number one. Um, any other thoughts on our receivers before we move on? No, I mean obviously Julio's Julio, right? So you have yeah. an above average one. Calvin is, you know a low-end one or a high-end two. two. So he's an above-average two. 
And then, you know, Russell Gage is a guy that has some clear strengths. Yeah. Uh, can run real fast. And that's enough out of the three spot for you. So. And what's impressive with him is how much he's developed because he was drafted to essentially be a special teams player. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at his college highlights, it's him running jet sweeps. It's not even a lot of him catching the ball. And he was drafted to be a special teams player. Crap, as a rookie, they were working at corner. And now he's been developed into like a really solid option. Like he's got much better hands than I realized. Um, and you can tell he's figured out how to, how to find open spots against his own. And behind them, they have Christian Blake. And I love Olamide Zacchaeus. If he wasn't 5'8", I think he could probably play a lot more. But he is just itty-bitty. But I just love him. I think he's got great hands. He's explosive. And then Brandon Powell, who is a complete unknown to me, but apparently won the, the spot as a sixth receiver, basically to be a kick returner. So don't know a whole lot about him other than the fact that uh, he's going to be the primary punt returner. So... Then at a tight end, you have Hayden Hurst, who is the big, the big uh, pickup to replace Austin Hooper, who is someone that I'm excited about. And Scott, when you think of Hayden Hurst, what is the first thing you think of? In the context of the Falcons, the first thing I think of is the opposite tight end from Austin Hooper. All right, Austin Hooper was one of those guys where, you know, he had the right body, uh, not a burner, Mm-mm. not a guy that beat man coverage. No, but. He ran good routes. He was very smart player. He's very good at getting open in zone and being where he's supposed to be and catching the ball. All right. And so you look at his breakdown, I don't know, something like 75 or 80% of his yards came against zone. He was a guy you could count on against zone. Hayden Hurst is a guy that might get lost and drift his way into being covered in the zone sometimes, but he's a better athlete. He's going to be more explosive. So he's a guy that you can probably get a few more. Uh, pop plays out of an Austin Hooper, but he may not be quite as reliable. And what you said is the first thing, I, what you said at the end there is the first thing I think of. When I think of Hayden Hurst, and I think that dude fast, fast. I think he was four or five-ish at the combine um, in that range, but like that's the first thing I think of with Hayden Hurst is he's fast. But I like him as a pickup. I also like Jaden Graham, although he's not very experienced. He's pretty raw. He's got a lot of upside. And then you got Luke Stalker, who's essentially your, your fourth tackle <laughs> as the blocking tight end. And then I think the position that people probably talk the most about is the running back position with Todd Gurley, Keith Smith, Brian Hill, and uh, Ito Smith. Keith Smith, of course, being the fullback. First good fullback we've had in a couple years, honestly. We've been pretty average to below average at that position for a couple years. Ricky Ortiz was not very good. Keith Smith's a fullback that can actually block and catch the ball, which is nice. And uh, I'm interested to see if that makes a difference. We've been atrocious at fullback the last couple of years. Yeah. And part of it was some injuries. Yeah, um, yes, that's true, too. It, it wouldn't have mattered so much if we didn't keep trying to run a lot of formations that counted so heavily <laughs> on the fullback. There's other formations out there. You can still craft a game plan without really counting on a fullback in the year 2020. Having a fullback, yeah, I mean, you're more versatile, more stuff you can do. It's definitely a plus to have a good fullback as long as you're not paying him a lot of money. And it's a leftover from the Kyle Shanahan offense because Shanahan does use fullbacks really well. And so mm-hmm. with them trying to keep the Shanahan formula – uh, for their offensive scheme in here, even after he left, they lost the guys that were good at doing it. Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, good fullbacks do cost a little bit. They got big contracts. Yeah, know, exactly. Good fullbacks cost a little bit, and you don't want to pay for that on a team where you're already giving, you know, 25% of your salary cap to your quarterback and starting wide receiver. So how do you feel about the offensive line for this year? I actually believe this is, on paper, the best offensive line we've had since 2016. On paper. Now, I will say this. I'm a lot lower on Lindstrom and McGarry than a lot of people. I, I wouldn't watch the games. And I'm not just relying on what people said. I didn't think they were very good last year. And I thought Lindstrom was really bad when he came back and played in the last year. But I also realize he's coming off an injury, and it's his first reps as a, as a NFL player. So I'm optimistic for how much he's going to improve. But the people are trying to say that, they, that he was okay last year. He was bad. I mean, he really, really – well, he was off balance. He couldn't stay on blocks. He wasn't good last year, I didn't think. I thought he started bad when he first got back and he improved Proved, a little bit as yeah. it went on. So for me as a rookie playing with an injury coming off injury, that's not a big deal. Yeah. I'm pretty high on Lindstrom for this year and for the future. Mm-hmm. I am very much less high on McGarry. McGarry. Yeah. Because to me, if I don't know if McGarry really, works out well for us, then we have a guy that should be playing guard, playing right tackle. <laughs> That's fair. And that was one of the questions was, 
do you do you kick him inside the guard, especially with as weak as we've been at guard, and and you know find an answer at tackle. And long term, that could still happen because you know if you don't bring if you decide not to you know give Alex Mack a two year deal or something like that, Hennessy goes to center, you slide McGarry over to left guard, and you go find a right tackle, and now you've really got something at offensive line. Um, if you can find a reliable right tackle, which is a lot easier to find than a left tackle. So, but I do think on paper, you know, they have, and just so, the, just so we can be clear, they have Alex Matt, Chris Lindstrom, Caleb McGarry, a penciled in at center, right guard, and right tackle with James Carpenter, penciled as a starter, but they've been clear that he's going to split time with Matt Hennessy. And Jake Matthews, obviously, at left tackle. Um, Matthews being a very underrated player. Um, a guy that's a really good tackle, but not an elite tackle. Would you agree with that assessment, Scott? Yeah, I think that's fair. So it's one of those things. If the offensive line stays healthy, then yeah, you're fine. This offense will kill it. Right. I agree. But if, you know, Alex Matt gets hurt and you have to throw in a rookie at center. Yeah. Then who knows? Or if, you know, McGarry is just not playing well, if it just doesn't click, if he's just not good and your right tackle is a turnstile, and mm. your backup is a Matt dude Gano, off the probably. street, I yeah. guess. I actually like Matt Gano, but, I mean, like you said, that ain't putting fear in anybody's heart to play Matt Gano. I mean. Yeah. And so, like, I, okay, like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic about the offensive line. I think it's improvement over last year just because you have the two rookies that aren't – you have two guys that aren't rookies anymore <laughs> playing on one side, and they're both coming into the season healthy. So that's already an upgrade. Yeah, not not counting on rookies is a much better place than right. meeting rookies. But without bearing the lead here, you know, we obviously we have to talk about Todd Gurley, and nobody's really sure what Todd Gurley we're getting. But I'm thinking realistically, and you, you can check me on this if I'm out of the I'm out of my mind. Give me 850 rushing yards, 40 catches, and 11 touchdowns. I don't think that's out of the question. Yeah, that's definitely possible. It just depends on how healthy he is, how much he plays, and how they split the carries up, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the one thing for Gurley, especially in the NFL, he's had some pretty big splits between how good he is at getting unblocked yards, which he hasn't been very good at, versus how good he's been at taking advantage of blocked yards, where he's been very good. So what I mean by that, right, is – some guys are really good when they get the ball. There is nothing there, and they can squeeze out two, three yards every time. LaShawn McCoy in his prime, guys like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that's good. It helps keep you from looking at second and ten every time, right? Um, Todd Gurley, yeah, he might just get zero on first down when there's nothing there. Uh, but then there's some guys that if you give them a little crease, you give them three yards, they're really good at turning that into 10, mm-hmm. 20, 40 yards. And some guys aren't. Some guys take that three and they turn it into six, and that's where it stops. Uh, Gurley's been the guy that's good at taking those three or four and turning that into big, huge chunks. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to be optimistic, that fits well in this team because you conceivably have a good offense around him, right? You're not game playing to stop him. You have a passing game, a quarterback, a receiver stud, and Julio – Right, so there could be open lanes. There could be a lot of room to run, uh, which is the party's good at taking advantage of. But yeah. big thing comes down to: does he still have knees? <laughs> yeah, and and I think the biggest thing for Todd Gurley is he is great. Even last year with his diminished role, he was good in the red zone, and he gets in the end zone. I think that's a a, a big a big asset to have somebody that can get in the red zone that can run a three yard play in and get a touchdown. And we, we, we haven't had that since Devontae Freeman was good back in like 2017. I mean, or 2016. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to that. I'll tell you the other one. And I, I'm a big Edo Smith fan. I've been, I've been banging that drum. So we drafted him. I think he's going to be a solid NFL backup running back, but God, that dude can't stay healthy. And he was on the verge of supplanting Devontae Freeman as the permanent starter last year. And then he tears up his shoulder. Yeah. Running backs get beat up. So the more yeah. you have, the better, right? Especially undersized running backs. Yeah, and as long as we don't have to build our offense around the running back, which we don't, then that's okay. So I I would say our running back room as a whole is probably pretty average for the NFL. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's okay. It's good enough, 
you have multiple guys so you can play. You don't have to be awesome at running back to win. You got to be awesome everywhere else. And this is proven by the fact that the two leading teams in the rushing in the NFL last year, the 49ers and the Ravens, had a bunch of running backs that nobody would want on their fantasy team. I'll put it that way. I mean, yeah. Raheem Mostert, I mean, who knew who he was before last year? You know, and he's the lead back for a team that almost won the Super Bowl. Yeah, so, like, if, like you said, if you are good enough other spots in the NFL, you can put any competent running back back there and have a successful offense. Yep. So, oh, yeah. So, on defense, running through the starters, uh, Tack McKinley, Grady Jarrett, Tyler Daverson are your defensive linemen and with Dante Fowler at the other defensive end. So, uh, it's interesting here that Marlon Davidson is not listed as a starter. Not that we expect him to be. But I think you're going to see him in heavy rotation. I can even see him kicking out the end on some early downs. Obviously, at linebackers, you have Deion Jones and Foye Aluakon. And this led to something you and I were talking about off-air, Scott. The Falcons' base defense is listed as a 4-2-5. Mm-hmm. So your outside corners are going to be A.J. Terrell and Isaiah Oliver. Your, and, it, and, the, and what's interesting here is that instead of listing uh, a nickelback as the fifth defensive back, the Falcons are listed here with three safeties, which I love. Ricardo Allen, Keanu Neal, and DeMonte Casey. So, for starters, Keanu Neal's really a linebacker. I know it's got an S next to his name, but if we're being real, he's basically a linebacker. Um, but when I saw that we had listed 425, uh, that was pretty encouraging to me, right? So, one, you know, this cover three zone that Dan Quinn and the MP Carroll and the Seahawks have, you know, been so well known for. It's not known for being flexible. It's known for like, right. these are my guys. We're running these two plays. Yeah. We're just going to execute well. There's Simplicity. A lot to be set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be mm-hmm. said for that. You can win that way. However, where you run into problems is when the league is such a pass heavy league and your main thing is being awesome at this formation that has three linebackers and four DBs. When you spend 75% of the game with five or six DBs. Mm-hmm. So great. We're getting super duper awesome at 25% of our time on the field. That's not a great way to build a team, mm-hmm. right? So it's encouraging to me to see that there's a little bit of a fundamental shift, right? To recognize that, Hey, we should practice we should spend most of our practice time doing the things we're going to do more often on the field rather than spending most of our time on formations we're not going to do. Um, And the other thing too, is it fits our strengths a lot better. We actually have three legitimate starting Mm -hmm. safeties. We do. We don't have three legitimate starting linebackers. No, we do not. That is, that is true. And and that's the thing is Devontae Casey has to be on the field. He's a ball hawk, Mm -hmm. but Ricardo Allen is the brains of your defense. And Keanu Neal is the backbone of your, your back end. So it's like all three of them have different skills that fit very well. And you mentioned the Seattle defense. You know, one of the reasons they're so successful is because they had Richard Sherman, who's a Hall of Famer, and Cam Chancer, who was a really, really good safety for about four or five years. Don't forget Earl Thomas and his wild and self. Oh, yeah, or Earl Thomas and his crazy fight my teammate self. I mean, you're talking about – that's probably two Hall of Famers in that same secondary. And another guy who, if he hadn't gotten hurt, could have been a Hall of Famer. I mean – you know, And I, a, Hall of, a Hall of Famer and, and Bobby Wagner. Bobby Wagner. Sure, right? And, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I like Keanu Neal. He's nice, but he ain't, he ain't Cam Chancellor. At least not, not yet. Now, it's arguably he could be that if he's healthy. And what's going to allow Keanu Neal to do is to do what he does best. Fit the box. And Keanu Neal is really good at covering running backs. He's had some really good games against Alvin Kamara. He's had some really good games against Christian McCaffrey. And you can see the difference when he doesn't play. Those are two things that he does well. The other thing that it might allow for, and I was reading about this earlier on the Falcoholic, which is a website that you need to be following if you're a Falcons fan. They do a good job. Um, With Raheem Morris being a Tampa Bay disciple, you might see a lot more of traditional split safety, two high looks, Um, which would fit to, again, what our strengths are. Ricardo Allen is a converted corner. DeMonte Casey is a converted corner. They have a lot of range. They're both good tacklers. Let them go get the football. Let them go get the football. And I could see us using a lot more split field, two high looks, a lot more cover two, which we generally do not run a lot of here, and less of the one high cover three and man free looks, with man free being one of our base, base coverages. And I think you're absolutely right that we it plays to the strengths of what this team is because Deion Jones and Foye Luakon are two pretty good linebackers. 
if Leroy Reynolds is playing or Michael Walker are playing a whole lot, we're not nearly as good because no. neither of those guys is as good as DeMonte Casey. No, not at all. And, and the thing is too, right? You're going to play two games against the Saints and Drew Brees. You're mm-hmm. going to play two games against the Bucks and Tom Brady. And those teams are going to spread the ball out and they're going to throw a ton. Right. Yeah. And in those games, you're going to have five or six DBs on the field for the vast majority of the game. So just go ahead and make that your main thing, right? The 4-3 is now a sub-package. People mm-hmm. like to think of nickel as a sub-package. It's not. It's nickel base is, now. Yeah, nickel is base. It has been for like almost a decade. People have only started recognizing it in the last like five years. And, sp- and speaking of if they do want to go with a true nickel set, you've got options with Kendall Sheffield and Dark Wizard, who was on my, the top of my free agent list for corners because he was an affordable corner that's just a solid starter. He's a solid starter quality corner. He's not spectacular. He's good enough to go out there and play as your CB2 and not get you killed. And I think Sheffield's got a lot of potential as a slot corner. So with Sheffield having been ruled out for the first game, you're probably going to see Denard as a slot corner if they go that route. But I think you have now what was a position that was very thin coming into the season. I think it's actually a position that's got solid, not spectacular, but solid depth. Yeah. The the depth is much improved there. And just like at safety, right, it's the opposite of linebacker, where you have four guys at cornerback where if someone said this person has to play 75% of the snaps, I would say, okay. okay. Like, that doesn't mean, oh, no, we're in trouble. Oh, mm-hmm. we're getting pounded. Uh, if you tell me Leroy Reynolds or Michael Walker have to play 75% of the snaps, now I'm concerned. Yeah. Right? Yep. So. And you have to think when the Falcons were good on defense at the end of 16 and for most of 17 – they got really good nickel play out of Brian Poole. When Brian Poole's play declined in 18, we weren't very good on defense, and we let him walk. Where was he last year? He was good for somebody last year. The Jets. Year. He was good again for the – I think, it was, the, I think yeah. it was the Jets, and he was good. Like you said, he was good again last year. And yeah. you just have to think, if, if you get good nickel play again and Keanu Neal in the field, let me add that, this is, a, this is a secondary that should be at least league average. And I will say just one last thing on the secondary, too – like you're saying, the nickel being sort of the, the the pivot point, right, for how the defense does, or at least the secondary. Um, I like having Denard and Sheffield there because you can play matchups because you have yeah. a lot of teams that like to go with their sort of, you know, uh, big nickel approach or like a, a bigger trips package where you just put your big wide receiver in the slot, right? Or your athletic tight end. Yeah, and so Denard's a little bit bigger, a little more mm-hmm. veteran guy that you can use in those matchups, and Sheffield is your guy that hey, it's not small, but he's you know average cornerback size, but he can really move. Yeah, he's uh, probably five so, eleven, one ninety five ish, and yeah, he's stupid fast. Yeah, so I I do like that those two guys have uh, you know somewhat um, contrasting and compatible skill sets too. So it's it's probably a little thing. But if it's a team that gets into the playoffs, that's the kind of thing where uh, it's one more thing that you, a defense can't just pound you to death with because you have a hole. So Now, a couple of things that are worth noting as we wrap up here. Charles uh, Harris, who is another one of our first-round picks, uh, one of our friends, Russ, told, told us this summer that we collect uh, busted first-round draft picks like Infinity Stones, which is actually pretty funny. So, Russ, <laughs> that did make us both laugh if you're listening to this. Uh, Deidre Snot did make the team, and we went in a very unusual route by taking 11 defensive linemen, which no one does ever, ever. 11 on your – like, <laughs> nobody does this. 11 on your roster. And so there's a very good chance that either Jacob uh, Tuitum – I cannot say his name – Mariner or Charles Harris or Deidre Snot, one of them's probably going to end up getting cut at some point or at least move to the practice squad. It's just hard to see us keep taking 11 on a game day. Yeah, the only thing is I also look at our defensive line group, and there's a lot of guys that just get banged up and miss time here and there. So it's possible that we could have 11 dudes and just have eight active every week because you always have three guys banged up. That's fair. And obviously the big big thing, the big addition is Dante Fowler Jr., who it's hard to say whether last year was an anomaly. You and I both thought the world of Fowler when he came out of Florida. I was really high on him. I thought he was going to be a good NFL defensive end. He goes down to Jacksonville. They convert to a 3-4, which is not really what he's best at doing. I mean, he's really a true 4-3 uh, defensive end, and he didn't fit down there. Gets 
goes to L.A., plays well, has finally the big sack here to match how well he was playing. Um, and I think he's a good fit for what we do in Atlanta, honestly. And then the big thing is tack. And you and I were talking about this the other day, but I didn't realize this until you were telling me that other than, in addition to being injured, tack had ballooned up to like 270 pounds last season. Yeah, he was big. And you could see it like in the offseason during the season. He was just at a, a weight that was not a good playing weight for him. Like his whole deal is supposed to be, you know, Speed. yeah, fast, mm-hmm. explosive, aggressive, play hard. When you're playing 20 or 30 pounds overweight, you're not as fast and explosive. Your motor isn't going to run as hard, right? Like that's, it takes away all the things that he was supposed to be bringing to the table. Like he wasn't a guy where you, you said, oh, he's so developed. He's got like eight pass rush moves coming out of college. He's got counters on counters. That wasn't his thing, right? It was like, this guy is a good athlete. He's a good he football player. Hard. And he's going to play extremely hard, give you 100%. And then when you're 30 pounds overweight, you just, yeah, you're not that guy anymore. So he didn't get his uh, fifth rookie year option picked up. And now he's mad about that. So he yep. lost some weight and now he's yep. going to try hard. Yep, that's that's exactly what it was. And I was reading an article with him and Bob McClure where he basically says that. It's like, yeah, well, I'm always motivated, but it was a little extra motivation. Uh, yeah, you were motivated last year. Okay. Well, uh, Tap McKinley and his uh, three and a half sacks <laughs> returning this year, he's in shape. And like you said, Scott, when I watched Tack at UCLA, the first thing I thought was, this guy plays really hard. There's at least like four or five highlights of him running down like a pass mm-hmm. play, like 25 yards on the field. You're just like, Good gracious, if this guy ever figures out how to have any kind of technique, he's going to be a monster. But, again, like you said, his big thing was being explosive off the ball and having a high motor, and he wasn't explosive. And he doesn't have good technique. He's very raw. He's not a refined pass rusher. So if he's not playing hard, he's just not very good, and that's what you said what we saw. Um, so I'm hoping that he'll be just give – me, give, me, give me eight this year, Tack. Give me eight, I'll be happy. Yeah, absolutely. That's a productive player that can be part of a winning defense, especially if you're an offense first team, which we historically have been with our defensive-minded head coach. coach. But I digress. Um, On the Dante Fowler thing, he had, what, 16 sacks last year? Yeah, something around there, 15, 16. Yeah, the number of sacks he had is definitely a bit fluky. He's not a 16-sack guy, right? He's like an 11-sack guy. Yeah, and, and he might even sometimes be more like an eight-sack guy. I don't know. Um, but I will say one of the things where he and Tech can both benefit, if they're guys that – if they play with a high motor, they're going to get some cleanup sacks when Grady Jarrett just mm. ragdolls dude in front of him and <laughs> collapses that pocket. Last year, that was how Dante Fowler got a lot of his sacks. Mm, from Aaron Donald. Just, yeah, it was unblocked stuff where Aaron Donald just, you know, went Hulk on, like, you know, both guards in the center or whatever Aaron Donald does. And the quarterback's, you know, like, oh, I got a dip. And Dante <laughs> Fowler's like, hey, I'm standing here. I'll, I'll just sack you real quick, you know. And so he, he did what he's supposed to do on those, right? There's no, like, hating on him for that. But it's just the kind of thing where if he wasn't playing right next to Aaron freaking Donald, the, like, 16 sacks turns into, like, eight or ten real quick. Still yeah. a good player. He also can play the run. Vic Beasley couldn't give us eight or ten sacks. Right. And he couldn't play the run. So, Dante Fowler, not a Hall of Famer. Dante Fowler, also a huge upgrade over Vic Beasley. And that's what I was trying to say. Dante Fowler's a really good fit for the Dan Quinn defense because, again, he does play the run. He was like a 270-pound defensive end coming out of college. He was an anchor. He can play that, that strong side defensive end and actually do what you need done there. Whereas Vic Beasley, we've said this for years, he was – he was out of position. Vic Beasley's a three, four outside linebacker. That's what he's always been. We recognized that about halfway through his rookie year, and it was too late. It's like, oh crap, we're a four three. He doesn't fit what we do, but we're just gonna try to make it work. But uh Dante Fowler truly is a good fit for what we're doing. And I think Tack McKinley is too. He really does fit the Dan Quinn mold. He just has got to figure it out. The defensive line, the body types, the types of players that we have fit very well with mm-hmm. what we want to do, which they should. Dan Quinn's been around long enough where it should look like his system and his type of players. You know, a lot of you, a lot of interior guys that might be small-ish, but yeah. play very fast and still play very physical. You can have guys that are small and that means they're not physical. That's not what we have with most of our players, right? Um, also, you have a lot of guys on the defensive line that are tweeners. A yes. lot of guys that are sort of, 
you know, playing end on rush on rundowns and then kicking inside and playing interior spots on passing downs, right? Like all of the backups, basically. Yeah. Alan Bailey is, uh, you know, between a defensive end and a defensive tackle. Right. Same for Marlon Davidson. Davidson. John yeah. Kaminsky is almost that too, right? So a lot of guys definitely like is. that. He's a tweener. And he's actually the one I wanted to mention real quickly before we move on is that I'm excited about because in his limited snaps last year, he was actually really good. He graded out extremely well. Not a lot of production, but he you could tell he's a kid that once he figures it out is going to be a good, solid rotational player. And mm-hmm. he's a guy that's only been playing defensive line for like four years. He came into like Charleston College as like a quarterback. So like, yeah, <laughs> not Charleston think, College, but sorry, Charleston as a quarterback. Yeah. Uh, this year the defensive line does look like it actually has enough depth where mm-hmm. it could be a good defensive line for the first time since 1998. I don't know. It's been a long time, y'all. But, you know, you look at the starters and it's like, hey, all of these guys are legitimate starters. Starters. Yes, that is true. Maybe not on Tyler Davidson. He's he's borderline. But Grady Jarrett's good enough where, you know, it still probably averages out. But I look at the backups and it's like, okay, Allen Bailey, Marlon Davidson, Kaminsky. These are all guys that could – start in a pinch no problem and guys that could potentially be better than that especially the the young guys you know still have a lot of potential so i you can talk yourself into this defensive line without mm-hmm. too much trouble and david uh, tyler davison was when he was good he was really good i thought he dropped off a little bit at the end of the year but i thought overall he was he's a pretty good player and that leads me to really the second question that we're talking about if we just spent 30 minutes talking personnel but uh what are the strengths of this team like what do you think like when we talk about what the 2020 Falcons were good at what is it going to be yeah first and foremost it's going to be offense throwing the ball it's going to be your quarterback and your receivers you know maybe your tight end and running backs catching it too right that's the offense for sure and the defensive side I think you have a you know you have a lot of guys that actually fit what Dan Quinn wants to do they've been yelling about fast and physical for (laughs) what seems like a decade now he's got the speed there now yeah, you actually have a lot of guys that play fast and physical, right? Mm. And you do have a lot of versatility and actually some pretty good depth. Everywhere except linebacker. There is no depth. No there. depth at linebacker. There wasn't last year either. Zero depth. Um, I, I said basically the same thing. We're on the same page here. Offensive skill positions. I mean, you're just loaded there. Quarterback, receivers, tight end, running back. You're, you're, you're very good there. I mean, very good. Now, granted – when you compare your personnel to the rest of your division, you look more average. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I still think that, in general, the offensive personnel for the teams in this division are far above average. I mean, crap. I mean, look at, the, I mean, look, look at what's on the Buccaneers' offense and the Saints' offense. I mean, I would say that, in general, this division has above-average skill players. And so the Falcons are actually probably average within their division. But I think that, in general, that's a real strength is their offensive skill positions. And then I said defensive versatility. And I really should add depth because – like you said, we have guys that I'm not terrified of putting on the field at every position except for linebacker. Mm-hmm. And I, like, and we mentioned this already, but just the number of interchangeable guys that can play multiple positions. So the next big question, and this is what we're going to have more fun talking about, what are the areas of concern for this team? I'd say really just how we defend the pass. And I don't know whether that really, you know, age-old question going back to when they started throwing the forward pass, I guess. Um, you know, the pass rush or the coverage, coverage, which is the one that's driving things, right? Um, our pass rush, you know, looking at the defensive line, a lot of versatile guys, a lot of like, you know, guys that are seem like pretty solid NFL players. Not a lot of guys where I go, wow, this guy has just some refined pass rush moves. He's going to beat this offensive tackle, right? Grady Jarrett's going to get some pressure, but the other guys, I don't know it's not impossible to imagine a a scenario where the pass rush is just kind of okay. Yeah. Right. But crap kind of okay would be an improvement, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think even if, you know, even if we all agree, Oh, they improved the defensive line group and the pass rush will be better. You know, it may still just be okay. Just kind of average, which like you said, that's an improvement, but it's not enough of an improvement to matter if your two starting cornerbacks are backup level players. Yeah. Which I don't know necessarily that they are, 
But what the cornerback room looks like is four guys that I would happily play as long as none of them had to be my number one cornerback. Speaking of which, <laughs> concerns for the team, my first two things, pass rush and cornerback play. Uh, because Eddie Terrell gets a bad rap for getting roasted by uh, Jamar Chase in the championship game. Yeah, welcome to all of college football. Thank you. Do you want do you want the body count for Jamar Chase? Because it includes a whole whole bunch of high draft picks, including all, all of them, literally all of them, right? Like pretty much everybody if, but Jeff Okuda. Yeah, because they didn't play, right? He would have roasted him too. Like if you're not gonna draft somebody because Joe Burrow and like the LSU offense scored on them, like okay, sure. Don't draft any defensive players for yeah, all 2020. Thank you. Good luck. you just excluded the entire 2020 DB class. So if anybody actually went and watched this film, AJ Terrell is like, is he's dude, he's a really good cornerback. He's uh, one of those guys that's really um, smooth in his transitions and the way he covers. He's long. He's got the typical, prototypical 6'1 frame. He is fast as can be with a 4'4. Four, four, not as fast as can be, but he's fast with a 4'4 four, four speed. He fits the Falcons cornerback profile to a T. He's good in man and zone, which is also something that is very underrated, that he's good in both systems. And he's got good ball skills. So, I think he is going to be our best cornerback this year. I think he's going to be better than Isaiah Oliver. I think so too. And I think all the potential is there. And I was, you know, never super worried about the pick or, you know, yeah. the prize that he was insanely overdrafted. He wasn't insanely he overdrafted. Um, but what I am not in love with is the the fact that I feel a lot better with him as a rookie being our number two cornerback. And I feel a lot better with Isaiah Oliver being our number three cornerback. I agree with that. And we just don't have a true number one out there. This is going to sound crazy. How much better would you feel if it was Eddie Terrell and Desmond Trufant? Oh, I feel so much better about the defense as a whole if you add Desmond Trufant. Because as much as Desmond Trufant gets dumped on, Desmond Trufant was a solid starting corner. Every now and then, better than solid. But at worst always a solid starting corner. And now you don't know like, okay, is AJ Terrell going to be a solid starting corner or is he just going to be good for a rookie? Yeah. There's just a lot of versatility, right? And you look at it and you can say, okay, AJ Terrell, who we think will play at a high level eventually yeah. in the NFL mm -hmm. has never played in the NFL. So he definitely hasn't played at a high level. Isaiah Oliver has never played at a high level. No. in the NFL. He's been right? up and down and it's been more down than up. Right. It doesn't mean he can't be good. It doesn't mean that we don't think he should be in the league or anything like that. But it means that I want my number one and preferably my number two cornerback to be guys that I know have like played at a high level already. Right. If I'm starting a rookie cornerback, I want it to be Jalen Ramsey, where it's such, oh, an easy, such an easy top five pick, you know, or maybe he went six. I don't know. Dallas is dumb. They should have drafted him over Zeke. I've been saying it before the draft so it's not a 20 it's not a hindsight is 2020 thing but anyway i digress um yeah if i'm starting a rookie cornerback i want it to be something like that a cornerback where you yeah. know he's gonna walk out there and and be a number mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. exactly and like you said if aj was a, terrell was a third corner like you feel so much better about the way this oh. lines up but i mean that's like the life we live in i think one of the things for isaiah oliver because having watched a good bit of him from college he should be a good nfl corner like mm -hmm. He had the longest arm in the draft. He's got good ball skills. But one of the other things is the system that he's best for. He is built for a press man system. And that hasn't been what we do all the time. Now, we played more of it. We played more of it at the end of last year, which is one of the reasons he improved. But his strength coming out of college was he's great in press man because he can use his length. He's got good ball skills. I hope we do more of that because AJ Terrell is a good press man corner. He can, he can mirror and run. And so – I think one of the keys to their success might be, hey, let's play more press man. Let's play more uh, even two man where you have your two split field safeties and everybody else is locked up in bad breath coverage. And I'm wondering if that might give them a better chance of being successful because there's not a lot of thinking. You're just doing something you've been coached to do for years and that you're already good at. Yeah, and can we also stop drafting guys who excel at doing things we don't want them to do? Yeah, I know. And, and you know the reason they took Isaiah Oliver is because he fits their profile. Longest arm in yeah. the draft, six foot, four or five. That's literally the Dan Quinn prototype for a quarter. Yep. But, again, you watch his film, you're like, well, you know, we play a lot of cover three. He's not really his own guy. Um, okay. Yeah, and, 
like we talked about, just from even something as small as the depth chart seems to indicate that they might be willing to adapt things a little bit, play to the strengths of players, et cetera. And so that's a little encouraging. We'll see if that plays out with something like whether we actually play a lot of man coverage because that's what our guys are best at. Yeah. So. All right. So moving on to question number four, our projections. Yeah. So give so best case and worst case. Give them your range. Best case and worst case. Well, I'll say I'll start with what I think will happen in pretty decent detail, which is start four and seven and rally to finish eight and eight. Right. And it just feels too right. But yeah, I mean, it really feels like somewhere around 500, give or take a couple games, right? If you get some injuries and things really go wrong, I, yeah, you could end up at six and 10. If everybody's healthy or things click, you know, if Isaiah Oliver and AJ Terrell are both ready to go, then yeah, you're nine and seven, 10 and six, somewhere in there. But I, I would say about eight and eight is where I would expect. And that's not even necessarily to say they're a bad team. It's no. playing in an above average division. You might be nine and seven in an average division. You might even be ten and six in a bad division. But we don't play and, in those divisions. So And how about our schedule being ridiculous? Can we talk about this? I mean Yeah, it doesn't help with the projections <laughs> either. Because you look at the Falcons, the Falcons feel like a nine win team. Uh on like, just personal wise, they feel to me they feel like a nine win team. And uh that's assuming just average health and everything else. And then you think, oh, okay, well. If the schedule is favorable, they're a 10-1 team. And then you look at it and you're like, the schedule is not favorable. <laughs> this could be an 8-1 team, like you said. Now, the one thing that I do have hope about is that the average record within the division for Dan Quinn uh, since he got here has been 4-2. and two. And uh, even in the years that we've not been good, we've had a 4-2 and two division record on average. And now there's something to be said about those records coming because we beat, you know, Tampa Bay in Week 17 in a meaningless game that hurts our draft position. But then there's last year we beat New Orleans in a game where they were still trying to win. So if you pencil us in for four division wins, which is dangerous, you can kind of turn your head sideways and squint and you can see a nine and seven come out of that. Yeah. It's, it's just five and five in your other games. Right. So exactly. That's, that's essentially what it is. And the other thing we have to acknowledge is that under Dan Quinn, the Falcons have for the most, with the exception of his first year, been a much better second half team. His first year, of course, we famously went five and one, and then became the first team to ever go five and one and miss the playoffs. <laughs> so there's that. Yay, Atlanta! But in the years following, we have been a much better second half team. Now, again, there's insert comment about us winning meaningless games and improving when other teams were starting to tank and rest guys, whatever. But so I would say my projection, assuming best case scenario is nine and seven, I can't really see ten and six unless one of the teams in the division really falls off or has some injuries. I think 10 and six would be like highest possible, like dream scenario. I'm going to go because I am the optimist of the two of us for nine and seven. But here's the thing, Scott, you and I talked about this nine and seven is probably third in our division, but it's probably getting you in the playoffs. It's probably getting you in the playoffs because they're adding the seventh team, the extra wild card spot. So that kind of leads into our last question. What does it take to save Dan Quinn's job? You absolutely have to win at least one, at least playoff, one playoff game. game. Yeah, to me. if mm-hmm. you know, Now there's a scenario where, let's say, somehow the Falcons win the division and get a bye or something like that. Then, yes, if you were to lose that first playoff game, that's a different scenario than a 9-7 right. and seven expanded field wild card lose the first round right. playoff game. Uh, but we're just going to say, since the most likely scenario is not winning the division, that yeah, getting in a wild card, you better be winning a playoff game or else it, you gotta go. Yeah, and we talked about this, but was it worth bringing Dan Quinn back to be a mediocre team again? Your vote was? No, super no, <laughs> a thousand no's. And my vote was yes, if you consider some other things and some of the some of my reasoning was a Matt Ryan's would it be his fourth offense coordinator in the last five years? Would that be if we changed coaching staffs? And assuming that we have the the general two year lag for Matt Ryan to catch up to the offense, which is what we've 
essentially seen the last few years of his prime. You're wasting another year of prime Matt and Julio, hoping that at Julio at 32 still's got some juice and Matt Ryan at whatever he'd be 36, 37 still has some juice. To which Scott Rebuttal is, if you go eight and eight, you waste another year of them anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know. In this case, it's like six to one, half dozen the other. Yeah. Either way, we've probably wasted all of Matt Ryan and Julio's primes. So yay. And, and, and truthfully, Dan Quinn, we've said, you have him rated as an average NFL coach. I have him like right in the middle of the pack, more or less. I have him slightly above the middle of the pack. Um, and we both agree he has not done a good job of setting of creating a good defense. So the hope is, as always, that we are a league average defense and an above average offense. And hearing Dirk Cutter, who you got to love because he's so stinking honest, talk about how basically last year he struggled at the beginning of the year because he didn't understand how some of the concepts were working for the playbook Kyle Shanahan that he was trying to run. It's like, who says that? I mean, even if it's true, who says that? So many mixed feelings about those kind of statements. Like, wow, I appreciate your honesty. I don't appreciate you honestly telling me that you're dumber than the other offensive coaches we have to play against. But, I mean, it wasn't so much him saying he – and I should – I'm putting words in my mouth. I'm just summarizing. But essentially saying, like, trying to implement that scheme and figure out, like, what, how they're trying to attack, what they're trying to accomplish with their, with their, con- with their passing concepts. And, I mean, the zone blocking scheme is what it is. But the way they use play action and boots and – just hearing him say basically it took me a while to figure it out. It's like, oh, that explains a lot of the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. Good gracious, does it explain a lot. Yeah, and I will say it was actually pretty good foresight on the part of Arthur Blank to keep Dan Quinn and everybody around uh, knowing that the pandemic was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, it means that uh, it would have been a very bad year to be breaking in a whole new staff. It's a perfectly fine year if you're the Panthers and you're like, blow right. it up. This is a great year to just blow it all up and not care. But, and, of course, obviously with Arthur Blank making that decision in December, there's we're joking and saying this. There was no way he would know that a worldwide pandemic would hit. But hey, that's actually – He might have known. You never know. <laughs> but it, it, it does make you feel a little bit better about Tampa Bay for all their talent. I mean, they're bringing in Leonard Fournette off the street, you know, two weeks before they play. There's something to be said about having cohesion with the Falcons bringing them back almost their entire offense. I mean, minus their tight end, they're bringing back essentially the exact same offense. And, you know, what should be their starting defense is the same, with the exception of Vic Beasley, trade him out, and insert Dante Fowler. This is the same team, more or less. And, oh, I'm sorry, we, we, we replaced uh, – we have Young Wei Ku now, and we replaced Matt Bosher with Sterling Hoffrichter. So, yeah, we got those two yeah. new additions. Well, the the DB is no true font. That's uh, no true font. You're that's that's true. Also, sorry, but, but but largely it's a lot of the same roster, same guys, more, yeah. more than average from NFL year to year turnover, and not a bunch of first year coordinators. Which always mm-hmm. people usually think that getting new coordinators will add wins. Getting new coordinators usually cost you wins, right? And then, implementation lag is what we call that. It's it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, jokes aside about the comments from our offensive coordinator, it, it takes a while to really get the hang of things, whether mm-hmm. it's coming in and getting the hang of someone else's scheme, whether it's, you know, really getting to know your personnel, right? Like, sure, you can watch film and figure out what things Matt Ryan does well and doesn't do well, and you can call your plays accordingly. But if you've been the quarterback's coach, the offensive coordinator with Matt Ryan for five or ten years, you know all of the little details. So as we wrap this up, it seems like I think we both kind of have the same feel. Like I think we're both kind of cautiously optimistic about the defense. Would that be a fair statement to make? Very cautious. But... <laughs> okay. How about this? Let me rephrase that then. We're both cautiously optimistic about defensive improvement. How about saying it that way? Yes. That, yeah. I can get on board with that. So. Offense, just assuming that it's the second year under Dirk Cutter, we just assume the Matt Ryan bump. Can we assume that now at this point in his career? Yeah, I think so. And that's not even unique to Matt Ryan. It's just yeah. second year, you know. Shanahan, right? Yeah. We, we, we were run, they wanted People wanted to run him out of town in year one. It was Matt Ryan's worst season in like six years. Yeah. And, and with Shanahan, 
I think like all five quarterbacks that he has really had, like established veteran quarterbacks, they all had like their worst year ever in his first year and their best year ever in his second year. Yeah. Right. So just that's how it goes. People adjust yeah. your expectations accordingly. So like I said, wrapping this up, I think the expectation is this team should be a, a pretty good offense. Uh, I would even venture to say if Todd Gurley is anywhere close to healthy, anywhere close to healthy and above average offense, hopefully a good enough defense to be an eight or nine one team. I think that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. And I will say this. I do think generally we're going to be a lot more fun to watch. than we've had been the last couple of years. I really do believe that. Um, it, it should be a lot of competitive games. We have a tough yes. schedule. A yes. lot of like the betting odds have it around eight wins or something. Mm-hmm. I think Vegas has is, a seven and a half. Yeah. Which is acknowledging that it's a tough schedule, but a, you know, a pretty good team. So. Yeah, I, I think as a team, we can at least enjoy watching. Hopefully, we squeak out a winning record and make it in the playoffs, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. All I can say is, r- rise up. Rise up. All right. Well, that's it for this one. Uh, Scott, tell the folks good night. Hey, good night, everybody. I hope you're watching this uh, Georgia High School football on YouTube TV like I am right now. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Yeah, um, if you are a high school football fan and you watched my team play last week on TV, I apologize for what you saw at the secondary. I don't know who coaches those kids, but uh, I'm sure he'll do better. The linebacker's coach. That's the problem. (laughs) That's it for today. This is the Side of Run Podcast. This is Scott Aiken and Dave Bethay. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.